On the 3rd of September, 1939, the British Admiralty sent a message to the entire fleet. Just three words. Winston is back. Now, less than a year later, Winston Churchill would be prime minister. And he would famously, as you know, lead the UK through what he called their finest hour against the German onslaught in the Battle of Britain. Now, I think no one was more surprised at the turn of events than Churchill himself. You, most Americans are very aware of, of Churchill's leadership in World War II and what, what a great and towering figure he was. But many Americans are not aware of the fact that though he had served with distinction in British government, actually for most of the early part of the 20th century, Churchill had effectively ruined his career. And he spent almost all of the 1930s out of office in, in what he called the wilderness. And so it was a big deal when the fleet got that message that Churchill was back. No one expected it. And yet it made all the difference, didn't it? As history would later show. The reason Churchill made such a difference, however, was, was not because he was a great military tactician. It was not because he had great diplomatic skill. Actually, he was terrible at both. And the generals and admirals tried to keep him as far away from tactics as possible. Now, now the reason that he made such a difference, the reason that it was such a big deal that he was back, was the way the nation responded to him. As as one journalist said, the, the way they responded to his energy, his courage, his singular purpose. Now, Many people were opposed to Churchill coming back. Actually, many people remained opposed to Winston Churchill throughout almost the entire war. And yet, as that same journalist put it, Churchill was simply the right man in the right job at the right time. Now, why do I tell you that? Well, it's not because yesterday was his birthday, though it was. It is because I think it's a pretty decent illustration of our text this morning. Because in our text this morning, word goes out, David is back. David is back. Now, like Churchill, some would welcome him. But many others would actually oppose him. Unlike Churchill, though, David's resurrection was not so much a matter of political necessity as it was a matter of divine necessity. For David's return and the nation's response to David was very much to be a foreshadowing of the return of an even greater king, King Jesus, from his exile in the grave. The question that our text this morning ultimately confronts us with is this. How will you respond to the return and to the reign of King Jesus? And maybe even more importantly, how will he respond to you? How will he respond to you? So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 19, verse 8. 2 Samuel 
chapter 19, verse 8. That's found on page 502, if you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided in the pews and chairs around you, page 502, 2 Samuel, chapter 19, verse 8. Now, we're going to look at chapters 19, 20, and 21 this morning, which means I'm not going to be able to read it all, which is, again, why we give you that sermon card, so some of you, at least, could be prepared in advance. You'll have read it already. It'll help you. But but let me see if I can sum up the point of these three chapters together. Can I put it in a a very simple sentence? Here's the point of chapters 19 to 21 of 2 Samuel. Blessing comes to those who receive the king. Blessing comes to those who receive the king. But sooner or later, and that's important, sooner or later, Judgment comes to all who oppose him. All right, so I'll give you the sentence one more time. Blessing comes to all who receive the king, while sooner or later, judgment comes to all who oppose him. Now, we're going to look at this chapter by chapter. And so if it helps, if if you're a note taker, if you want to know the outline, here it is, chapter 19, the king's reception. The king's reception. Chapter 20, the king's rejection, the king's rejection. Chapter 21, the king's satisfaction, the king's satisfaction. All right, well, let's work our way through this, shall we? uh, First, chapter 19, the king's reception. Look there at verse 8, chapter 19, verse 8. Meanwhile... The Israelites had fled to their homes. Throughout the tribes of Israel, the people were all arguing with each other, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He is the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he has fled the country because of Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Now now skip down to the end of the chapter, verse 41. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his household across the Jordan together with all his men? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king. Besides, we have a greater claim on David than you have. So why do you treat us with contempt? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the men of Judah responded even more harshly than the men of Israel. All right, chapter 19 is framed, as you can see, beginning the beginning of our passage and the end of our passage. It's framed by by argument, by by division between the northern tribes, what would later be known as the, the, the ten tribes of Israel, and the southern tribe, of Judah. We're already in this conflict in chapter 19, beginning to get a glimpse of the future when the nation itself is fully and formally divided. But the, but the reason that our author, I think, frames this chapter with this argument and this division is he wants to bring into focus the very specific responses of three people in the midst of all of this argument, in the midst of all of this division over the king. First up, is Shimei. You remember Shimei. 
when we were looking at, at chapters 15 to 18. Shimei is the man who pelted David with dirt and cursed him as he was fleeing Absalom, as he was fleeing from Jerusalem. So look at chapter 19, verse 16. Let's, let's see what happens with Shimei. Shimei, son of Gera, the Benjamite, from Bahurim, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, the steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. They rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and to do whatever he wished. When Shimei, son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king, and he said to him, May my lord not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. But today I have come here as the first of the whole house of Joseph to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. All right, there's a little doubt why Shimei is first in line to meet the king, why he's first in line to, to plead for mercy. He knows that his neck is on the line. And so right there we see that, that he does two things. He, he, he rushes down to, to meet the king, and first he admits he was wrong. He says it actually twice there. I, I, I know that I did wrong. I don't, don't remember what I did that, that was wrong. He, so he admits he was wrong. And, and then second, he points out what he's done. He got there first. He's first in line. And, and what's more, he, he's brought a thousand Benjamites with him to honor the king, including Ziba and all of his sons and servants. I don't know about you, but when I read what, what Shimei says there, he sounds eerily familiar. T- to me, Shimei sounds like a lot of people I meet every day when I, when I talk to them about their relationship with, not with David, but with Jesus. I don't know really anyone who, when they think about meeting God someday, claims to be perfect. I'm sure you don't claim to be perfect. I'm sure you don't hope that on that last day when, when you're faced with God, you, you, you know, you're, you're going you're to claim perfection and, that, and that's why God should, should accept you. I, I don't ever hear people say that. What I do hear a lot of people talk about is, is their good deeds and, and how they're hoping that, that now their good deeds are, are going to somehow or another make up for their bad deeds. They know they did bad deeds. They know they've not been perfect. But they're hoping that now, having acknowledged, no, of course I'm not perfect, but look what I've done. Look at the good things that I've done. When I hear that kind of response, honestly, I always find myself needing to kind of scratch my head a little bit. Because my question is this. Why do we expect God to play by a set of rules that no one else does. You, you see, that, that logic that we bring to, to hoping that our, our good deeds will, will outweigh our bad deeds, 
That logic applies nowhere else in life that I can think of. All right, so, so, so when somebody is, is arrested and, and, and brought to court and, and tried, what, what role does his prior good record play? Well, it might serve to lessen the sentence, but it never serves to remove the guilt. It doesn't outweigh anything. Guilt is guilt, and it has to be dealt with that way. Or, or move, move out, of, out of the court of law, move, move out of our, our system of jurisprudence, and, and think about just personal relationships. Think about the husband who's, who's caught in adultery. I mean, what, what sort of husband in that, in that case would, would say, yeah, I did it, but, but you know, for 20 years, I was really faithful in providing for my wife and my kids, and I have done all of these good things in the past, and that surely should, you know, should just take care of, of my, my one night of infidelity. No, she'd throw him out, right? If she wasn't going to throw him out anyway, she would definitely throw him out of that. That, that, That's not the way it works. It doesn't work that way in our personal relationships. It doesn't work that way in, in our own courts of law. No matter what the good deeds are, guilt is guilt. And rebellion and sin deserve judgment. Now, Abishai gets that. that. That's why Abishai, right there in verse 21, says, well, wait, a, wait a minute. Who cares how many people you brought with you? You cursed the Lord's anointed. Should, should, he turns to David. Should, shouldn't, you just, shouldn't you just be put to death? Shouldn't he be executed right here, summary judgment on the spot? But David refuses. Look at verse 22. David replied, What do you and I have in common, you sons of Zeruiah? This day you have become my adversaries. Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that today I am king over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. What's going on there? Here's what's going on. A a, a king who is secure in his Kingship, a king who is secure in his power, can very well afford to extend clemency to those who have done him wrong. He can extend clemency, mercy, to those who deserve to die. And I think in this, in this moment, this kind of surprising moment in the narrative, David gives us a perfect picture of Jesus' reign right now. You know, when, when Jesus returned from his exile in the grave, his resurrection from the dead proclaimed with power that Jesus is king, king over everything and king over everyone. He had conquered death itself. Now, now the Jews were expecting that when the Messiah, when, when the king, David's heir, finally showed up, when he finally came, he would basically, in summarily fashion, wipe out all of his enemies you know, into the world, right there, boom, instant judgment, it's all over, no chance for anyone. That was the expectation. 
And so it came as a huge surprise to everyone that when the Messiah finally came and when he was declared with power to be the Messiah, to be the king through his resurrection from the dead, instead of taking vengeance on his enemies at that moment, on that spot, he said, not today. Not today. Judgment is delayed. Today is to be a day of salvation. Today is to be a day of mercy. Today, you will not die. If you repent and put your faith in me. It scandalized everyone. The the, the Jews pretty much rejected Jesus as Messiah because he wasn't coming in judgment, because he came in mercy instead. Is Shimei a picture of repentance? Is is Shimei a a picture of someone who has has now been given that that extra bit of time, that, 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 that moment, that day of mercy? Well, before we answer that question, let's consider the next person David encounters, and that's Mephibosheth. Look at verse 24. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord, the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. My lord, the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever pleases you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from my lord, the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the fields. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord, the king, has arrived home safely. It's in this section that we learn why Ziba and his sons were so eager to accompany Shimei to the fords of the Jordan to meet the king. The other side of the story is about to come out. And it's going to be compelling. Far from gloating over David's demise, Mephibosheth had been betrayed by a servant and he had gone into mourning for David. But what I really want you to notice is the difference between Mephibosheth's speech to David and Shimei's speech to David. Shimei basically said, I was wrong, I'm sorry, but now look what I've done. Mephibosheth actually is able to say, I was innocent but I don't deserve anything from you but death. And so I entrust myself to you. Do do you see the difference? I'm wrong, but look what I've done now. Versus even my innocence is worthless before your goodness and counts for nothing. Much later, the prophet Isaiah would declare 
all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before the Lord. I think Mephibosheth understood that. Shimei clearly did not. Which is why, to fast forward the story just a little bit, David would instruct Solomon to bring Shimei to judgment in 1 Kings chapter 2. David can't see into the heart. And so he removes Mephibosheth's punishment without taking away the reward to Ziba that he had given for the actual and real help that Ziba gave. But friends, on the last day, the one who can see into the heart, David's greater son, Jesus, he will be the one to judge. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? In other words, Lord, Lord, look at all the things we did. And Jesus' response on that day, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, I think the contrast between Shimei and Mephibosheth is not finally, in the author's mind, a contrast between guilt and innocence. It is the contrast between a prideful heart that believes that it is worthy of the king's blessing and a humble heart that knows that it is not. As Jesus said in Luke 17, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Do you understand what Jesus is saying there? Really what Mephibosheth is confessing, even our obedience is unworthy of the Lord's blessing. But here's the irony. It is the humble heart, not the worthy heart, the humble heart that attracts the king's mercy. And friends, it is mercy that we need, for none of us stand here innocent, not a single one of us. So I want to urge you this morning, do not be like Shimei. Do not be someone who seems to have all the right words of repentance and yet does not have the heart of repentance. Put aside your boasting. Put aside your pride. Confess not just your sin, but your unworthiness. And then entrust yourself to the king's mercy because today is the day of mercy. That's that's what Shimei was granted. And then he took it for granted. Do not be like Shimei. Today is the day to humble your heart, to confess your own unworthiness, to, 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 to stop counting on all the good religious things that you've done, to, to stop counting on your niceness, to stop counting on your efforts for Jesus and instead to simply humbly entrust yourself to him. Now, if you're here this morning and you're already a Christian, then then 
you already know what I'm talking about. You know what it means to understand yourself to be unworthy of the Lord's blessing, to be unworthy of God's grace. Christian, let me encourage you, never move from that place. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian and and you find that that you don't have a lot of joy in your salvation. Christianity has become for you just duty, rules, activities, obligations. Friend, could it be that you have allowed just a little bit of pride to enter back in? Could it be that you have begun to take your salvation for granted? Could it be that you've even begun to take some satisfaction in your obedience, in in your following after Christ, in, in, in your good works? Friends, you'll never find joy there. That will always become duty and drudgery to you. Christian, remind yourself of just how unworthy you are of the Lord's love. And then you will find the joy you are seeking in the Lord's love that you now remember you didn't deserve, you don't deserve, and yet you have in abundance because of Jesus Christ. Friend, there is where joy is to be found, in that posture of humility. Now, as a church, let's not miss the point of David's third interview, the third person he meets, and that's, that's Barzillai. There in verses 31 to 40, David wants to reward him. Barzillai has taken care of him in his exile. But Barzillai asks that the honor, the reward, come not to him, but it be extended to someone else. Verse 37, let your servant return that I may die in my own town near the tomb of my father and mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. Do for him whatever pleases you. The king said, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever pleases you. And anything you desire from me, I will do for you. Henson Baptist Church, like Barzillai, we don't want to keep the king's blessing for ourselves. We, We want to see the king's blessing, the king's reward, the king's grace extended to others. We're actually not told who this Kimham is. He is most likely Barzillai's son or his grandson. Barzillai has been offered a place in the palace at Jerusalem, and Barzillai says, no, give it to Kimham. So, so I want to I ask you, just as a church, who are your spiritual sons or daughters, your spiritual grandsons or granddaughters that you are seeking to see the blessing that you've known extended to? And how are you doing that? You know, this is a church filled with extended biological families, and it's a great blessing for this church. And and I watch as, as you all obey the Lord faithfully in loving and caring for your children and your grandchildren, and in some of your cases, your great-grandchildren. And that is a right and good thing to do. Are you just as eager, just as busy, just as dedicated to, to seeing blessing passed on to your spiritual sons and daughters, 
to your spiritual grandsons and granddaughters, great-grandsons and great-granddaughters? Is there anybody in this congregation that you could point to You could say, you know, that person has come to know the blessing of the king, King Jesus, at least in part through me, because I sought to push the blessing out. Maybe not directly. Maybe maybe I discipled a fellow or or, or taught a young guy in Sunday school who then grew up to to share the gospel with his friend, and that that friend is is now here following Jesus Christ. Do, do, Do you see what I'm talking about? There is a, not a generational biologically passing on a blessing, but a spiritual, generational passing on of blessing. Let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of congregation that is as aware of our spiritual lineages as we are of our biological ones, that is just as committed to our, our, our spiritual sort of obligations and loyalties as we are of our biological ones. For those will last much, much longer. If the king is going to receive us in his glory, we must receive him now in humble repentance and in faith. All right, second, chapter 20, the king's rejection. The king's rejection. Look at verse one of chapter 20. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from Jordan to Jerusalem. So in the midst of all the division and conflict that framed chapter 19, there's this fellow that just happens to be there, Sheba, a relative of Saul, and he sees his opportunity and he he takes it, kind of the main chance. His goal is division and dissension. He is very much wanting to set himself up and to divide off the northern tribes from the southern tribe of Judah. And, And he's somewhat successful. He actually gains a following. Look at verse 14. Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, Beth, Makkah, and through the entire region of the Barites, who gathered together and followed him. So he seeks division, he seeks dissension, he sets himself up, and he gains a following. But Sheba is not the only one who rejects the king's authority in chapter 19. Actually, as, this, as, the, as the author tells the story, he, he puts the whole thing Sheba's story on hold, and he turns to Joab. Back in chapter 19, I didn't read it, but back in chapter 19, David had removed Joab as head of the army, and he had put Amasa, who had been the head of Absalom's army, he puts Amasa in charge of the army in his place. It was a shrewd move politically, and it was clearly in response to Joab's disobedience to David earlier. But Joab is a loyal man, and to the end, he remains loyal to David. But the loyal to David, Joab's ultimate loyalty is always to Joab. Look at verse 8 of chapter 20. 
the army, has, the army of, of Judah has gathered to go chase after Sheba. And in verse 8, while they were at the great rock in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Joab was wearing his military tunic and strapped over it as his waist was a belt with a dagger in its sheath. As he stepped forward, it dropped out of its sheath. Joab said to Amasa, how are you, my brother? Then Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. Amasa was not on his guard against the dagger in Joab's left hand. And Joab plunged it into his belly and his intestines spilled out on the ground. Without being stabbed again, Amasa died. Then Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. All of a sudden, Joab is back in charge, loyally carrying out David's order to catch and defeat Sheba. Now, the the stories of now two rebels, not one, but two rebels, collide outside the walls of Abel. Joab is ready to destroy the city, a city full of innocent people, in order to get his one man, Sheba. And we're not surprised. He's, he's already killed Abner. He's, he's already killed Absalom. He's, he's just killed Amasa. Three men killed in cold blood. What are a few more women and children? A wise woman intervenes. And through her godly wisdom, she not only secures the judgment of Sheba that's needed, the people of Abel execute him and throw his head over the wall to Joab, She judges Joab as well. Through her words, she confronts him for trying to destroy the Lord's inheritance, his people. And in the process, she saves the entire city. What do we make of such a sordid chapter of rebellion and bloodshed? I want to suggest several implications, which I'm going to move through quickly. First, in a fallen world, The reign of the true king will provoke division. The reign of the true king will provoke division. Jesus himself said, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two, and two against three. It is the nature of the true king's reign to bring about division between those who are true to the king and those who have rejected the king. His his reign is going to provoke this division in our families. It's going to provoke that division in our communities. It is going to provoke that division in our churches. So we should not be surprised and think that something has gone wrong when division happens, especially when that division centers on what it means to follow Jesus the king. Second, we should take division in the church seriously, and we should deal with it quickly. That's what David did. He sent troops after Sheba, and he did it because he said that Sheba would do more harm than Absalom had done. Why is that? Well, you see, Absalom had attacked the king personally and the king's rule, but the nation stayed united around Absalom. Sheba attacked the kingdom itself. And division in the kingdom destroys the kingdom's witness to the king. 
Division in the kingdom destroys the kingdom's witness to the king. How is it that the world around us recognizes the king? When they see us united in love, when they see us united in discipleship, in following hard after Jesus. So so I put to you, especially members of this local church, do you tolerate division in the kingdom? Do you participate in division in the kingdom? Or, Or have you realized how serious division is in the church? And have you set yourself to being one of those people that that seeks to confront the divisive person and to bring healing to division in the church? Third, church discipline is an appropriate response to divisiveness. Church discipline is an appropriate response to divisiveness. As, As I said, Jesus said the world would recognize us as his disciples by our love for one another. This is why the apostles took divisiveness so seriously. Now, we're not to cut anybody's head off, all right? Church discipline is in no way corporal, all right? Rather, Titus instructs us to warn the divisive person once, then warn the divisive person a second time, and if they still persist in their divisiveness, have nothing more to do with them. Put them outside the church. Treat them as somebody who is not a part of the kingdom. I think it is something that our church here at Hinson understands really well uh, that that it would be appropriate to, to exercise church discipline, let's say, in the case of gross moral failure. Uh, somebody commits adultery. They leave their wife. Somebody decides to, to uh, adopt and to begin to practice an openly homosexual lifestyle. Somebody um, embezzles all the money at their, at, their, um, at their workplace. Gross moral failure, yeah, we get that. And if it's unrepentant, we would exercise church discipline. And I have no doubt that this congregation would be able to do that. My question to you is, Do we treat divisiveness just as seriously? The New Testament did. David did. Do you? Fourth, though not all rebellion can be dealt with through church discipline, and that's that's the case, church discipline is not able to deal with every instance of rebellion. So though church discipline can't deal with all instances of rebellion, nevertheless, all rebellion will be dealt with by King Jesus. All rebellion will be dealt with by King Jesus. This chapter, if you've read chapter 19, I mean chapter 20, chapter 20 ends and it is most unsatisfying. Yes, the outward rebellion of Sheba is dealt with. His head is thrown from the wall. But the personal rebellion of Joab is not dealt with at all. He goes back to the king in Jerusalem. He is now head of the army, and that's the way the chapter ends. Loyal to David, but completely unsubmissive. 
David's son, Solomon, would later bring Joab to justice. You read about that in 1 Kings chapter 2 as well. But here's the point. David's greater son, Jesus, will one day bring every proud rebel to justice. As we read earlier from Matthew chapter 25, on the last day, Jesus will reveal the true loyalty of our hearts, and he'll do it through the quality of our lives. We read the positive section of Matthew 25, but in in the verses that follow what we read, uh, Jesus points out that there will be many who protest their loyalty to Jesus, who in fact were loyal only to themselves, just like Joab. And, And the proof? Well, the proof will be that they failed to lay down their lives, their self-loyalty, in order to serve their brothers. So if you're here this morning, and especially if you're here this morning and you consider yourself religious, if you're a religious person, let me encourage you, do not deceive yourself. You may not be a scoundrel like Sheba. You may not be in, in, in outward, open rebellion against Jesus. In fact, you may be quite successful in serving the cause of Christ. But friend, let me encourage you to do what you alone can do. I can't do it for you. Your, your friends can't do it for you. You must do it. Examine your heart. If Christ asked you to, to take a demotion in the kingdom, to be a foot soldier rather than a general, to to be a helper rather than being in charge. Would you accept it gladly and humbly because your loyalty is to Christ and not to yourself? Friend, are you known as somebody who's willing to serve King Jesus, but when you look at it, you realize, yep, I'm willing to serve the king only so far as it serves me. And when the will of Christ crosses my will, then my will wins. Friend, your response will tell you where your loyalty really lies. Your response will tell you the identity of the king you really serve. Friend, examine your heart. Examine your heart. Because sooner or later, to reject the king's authority openly like Sheba, or just personally and quite successfully like Joab, sooner or later to reject the king's authority is to earn the king's judgment. But of course, it's at that moment that we realize that, wait a minute, that's that's all of us. All of us, in one way or another, have rejected the king's authority, which is why we need chapter 21 the king's satisfaction. Look in verse one. During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his bloodstained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. The Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, we have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. 
What do you want me to do for you, David asked. They answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aya's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed and exposed them on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Allah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. From the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. When David was told what Aya's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had taken them secretly from the public square at Beit Shan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish at Zilah in Benjamin and did everything the king commanded. And after that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. This chapter doesn't follow chronologically immediately after chapter 20. We've seen this before. Oftentimes, our author has arranged material in order to make a theological point, not a chronological point. In fact, chronologically, it appears that the events of chapter 21 happened somewhere between chapter 9, where where David discovers Mephibosheth and honors him, and chapter 16, where Shimei cursed David for these very deaths that we read about in chapter 21. This is a brutal chapter, and it's meant to be, because it's meant to demonstrate what is required of the king in order to satisfy the claims of God's justice and to make atonement for sin. You see, this is what David offers the Gibeonites in verse 3. If you're reading the NIV, what we have in the the pew, the the, the question is, how, how shall I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? Literally, David asks, how shall I make amends? atonement. You see, the Gibeonites had made a covenant with Joshua, and Israel had sworn an oath not to destroy them. And it seems, as our author tells us, that at some point, not recorded in the rest of Scripture, Saul had broken that promise, and he had tried to wipe them out. And now God was holding Israel responsible for the covenant that she had made with the Gibeonites. David wants to know how Can I propitiate? That is, how can I satisfy and turn aside God's wrath against Israel for breaking this covenant? And the Gibeonites' answer is clear. Neither a financial settlement or personal vengeance would suffice. Rather, the penalty of the covenant for the covenant breaker had to be enacted. The covenant breaker had to undergo an accursed death. Since Saul was already dead, 
representatives would have to stand in his place. David spared Mephibosheth because of his own covenant with Jonathan, but seven other innocent male relatives are chosen. Seven symbolizing, I think, completion, a sufficient sacrifice. And in Saul's hometown, they were judicially executed and then exposed, literally hung or or impaled on on a tree as those under the curse of God. Then having suffered the curse as representatives of the nation, David took the bones together with the bones of Saul and Jonathan and he buried them. And at long last, the house of Saul came to rest. The curse had been born. God's judicial wrath had been assuaged. It had been satisfied. And as verse 14 tells us, God answered David's prayer in behalf of the land. Now, this chapter ends with with stuff that I didn't read. It, it, It ends with a list, a final list. David and his mighty men defeating the enemies of God's people, that they're giants, Fierce and determined, but every one of them falls. Not one enemy remains. The chapter ends with the conquest of the king as absolute. And taken together, we have a picture of the judgment of God. Friends, the judgment of God may be delayed, but it will not be denied. His anger against sin, his anger against your sin, his anger against my sin will be satisfied either in final judgment of the sinner as as pictured in the defeat of the Philistines or through the judgment of a representative, a sufficient substitute in the place of the sinner. And friends, that substitute is the king, King Jesus. Jesus, the king, is the one who satisfies the wrath of God against God's people. He's the one who is sufficient because he had no sin of his own. We don't need seven sacrifices. He alone is sufficient for all. He is the one who died the accursed death on the tree. He is the one who, after his resurrection from the dead, could point back to his own death and burial and on that basis intercede for sinners like you and me and like David, but oh, so much more. His prayers are heard. The Father honors the prayers of the Son for those that the Son have redeemed. You know, I think perhaps the most striking moment in these three chapters is that of Rizpah, a mother who keeps watch over her innocent sons at the place of judgment. A mother who's not ashamed of their wounds, who who doesn't recoil at the horror of the fate. I think in that that scene, we're reminded of another mother who would watch her own son crucified and who would stand watch there at the foot of the cross in love. Friend, are you willing to stand watch cross? Are you willing to bear the shame of the crucified Savior, the one who was crucified for you? Does love compel you to honor the sacrifice of an innocent man who died in your place?
Are you willing to embrace Jesus in his death for you? Friend, on what terms will you receive the king? And on what terms will he receive you? You see, if you will not fall at the foot of the cross like Rizpah here, then you will fall at the sword of his judgment like those Philistines. So put aside your rebellion. Lay down your independence. Lay, Lay down your pride. Think nothing of your good works. Slay your self-loyalty. The terms King Jesus offers are nothing less than unconditional terms. Unconditional surrender. In the humility of a Mephibosheth. In the love of a Rizpah. But friend, the benefit you gain far outweighs the cost you pay. For the benefit you gain is to be received by the king. And what is there to compare with that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would have a true view of our hearts And we pray that we would have a true view of the cross. We ask, Father, that you would give us grace, undeserved, unmerited, that that brings us to turn away from our pride, to turn away from our self-loyalty, and to give ourselves instead to the one who gave himself for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.